The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and let's open them to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 16. And our subject this evening, again, is living in wisdom. This fourth chapter of 1 Timothy begins with a warning against false teachers, and then it ends with this very good advice that Paul gave about protection against these false prophets. He said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now the last part of that verse is the part that stands out most in relation to our subject. Uh, I'm sorry, the first phrase does, I meant uh, the first phrase, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. Our study the past few weeks has been about the Baptist acrostic and how Baptists have continued to teach the same doctrines that Christ and the apostles taught. And the first part of that verse tells us how we can protect doctrine. And as far as the church is concerned, that is uh, uh, very important for us, that right doctrine and right interpretation of doctrine is the thing that will always protect the church. And that first part of the verse tells us that. But then I also want you to notice the last part of the verse for just a few minutes. It says, For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and those that hear thee. Now he says, Thou shalt save thyself. Now, as far as the doctrine of salvation is concerned, justification is the main doctrine that we looked at. That is a doctrine that has to be protected because when that is perverted, salvation is impossible. Justification is the heart of the gospel. And as the Apostle Paul said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so we have to continue to teach correctly about justification and we must be careful that we get all the constituent parts of it right. The right doctrine, of course, then is necessary for personal individual salvation. The main doctrine of personal salvation is that doctrine of justification. And what is the church but a collection of saved people? And so it would follow then that in order to protect the church and be sure that it's divine, that we also have to look at that doctrine of justification. We have to be right on it or the church doesn't survive. But it takes more than that. It takes more than the doctrine of salvation for us to have a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are other doctrines that have to be considered when we get into the ecclesiastical aspects of the church. Those doctrines also have to be right in order for us to protect the church and to keep it alive. And if we don't do that, then we are in danger of having the status of the church removed as being one of the true churches of the Lord. Now, when Jesus gave the promise of Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, he was speaking of the church as an organization. And he wasn't talking about any individual particular church. Not until we get to heaven will the church ever disappear. But Matthew 16, 18 is not a promise for any individual church. And we see this because right in our own country, there are churches that are disappearing. Baptist churches close their doors. Good churches are getting far and few between. 
I don't want to toot our horn, but how many times have we talked to people that moved away from us and they they talk to us again and they say, we just cannot find another good church. We have a really, really hard time finding another church that is like Berean Baptist. And what we find is our country is following fast on the heels of churches in Britain that was once the stronghold of Christianity. And now you go to England today and churches are closed. The doors of churches all over the place are closed. Baptist churches are closed. And England does not send out Baptist missionaries like it once did when William Carey revived the modern missions movement. England's not doing that any longer. Today, England needs missionaries that are sent to them. And you say, well, what? what's the problem here? The very thing that Paul is talking about. They did not take heed to doctrine. And so now the church there has gone out of existence. Now let me show you how that those who came after Timothy must not have heeded the words of the Apostle Paul. Just turn over to Revelation chapter 2 for just a moment, where we read about Jesus' message to the pastors of the churches of Asia. And the first one on that list is the church of Ephesus, which is a church that Timothy pastored uh, at one time. And this is what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 to that church. He said, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, this is a message that Jesus intended for the pastor. He said to the angel at the church of Ephesus, right? That word angel means a messenger. And the messenger is the one who reports a message from God. And that's what the pastor of a church is. He's the one who reports the message that's given by God. And so the pastor of the church is the one who stands as the front line of defense against false doctrine. He's the one that guards the church. He is to protect the church because he has the message from God. So he guards that flock that he oversees. Well, Jesus said that the church at Ephesus was doing some good things. Thankfully, they were still standing against evil. They recognized false doctrine when they heard it. They knew false teachers from true ones. They were a working church, and Jesus commended them for that. However, he says in verse number 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. At the time this letter was written, this is about 30 years after Paul wrote the letter of 1 Timothy, and at that, that time, the, this church had become inwardly focused. They continued to work. There was a lot of activity that was going on. The church may have been like many churches today that have all kinds of programs, a program for everything that you can think of. They were a social church. But what they had done is they'd moved away from the deeper doctrines of the faith. 
And they were living up here on the surface in the doctrine of salvation. And they were also happy that they're saved. They're up on the surface of salvation. And now they're no longer sensitive to the need that Christ has for that church and what he wants that church to do. Instead, they become a church that was inwardly focused. And now they are a felt needs church. What do we need? What, what, what do we need for ourselves? And they're a felt needs church rather than a savior focused church. So they stopped thinking about Christ. They left their first love and they switched the focus from a God-centered religion to a man-centered religion. Now I have to remind you that we're talking about a Baptist church here because you go back into the first century. Even though churches were not called Baptist churches, yet that's what they believed. Exactly what we're teaching in our church tonight. We're teaching the same doctrines they taught. All of the churches at that time taught these very same doctrines. And now the church has a problem, and that problem is reflected in today's Baptist churches. And that is, we are no longer doctrinal. At some point, churches lost the focus about doctrine, and they started to center things on themselves. And so they didn't take heed so that the church was lost. Today, you don't find a church at Ephesus. The city's gone, the church is gone. There's no one who can say, well, we are the successors to the Ephesian congregation. Now that shows us that Christ didn't promise any individual church that it would survive till he returns. Um, no local congregation is guaranteed of survival unless it does what Paul said. That is, take heed to yourselves, take heed to doctrine. And so there is going to be a true church that remains somewhere in the world. Jesus did promise that. The church is not going to go out of existence. But he didn't say... This church right here will always exist until he comes again. Not unless we do exactly what he says. Take heed to doctrine. Well, I think of the hundreds of Baptist churches that we have in Kentucky. Um, there are lots of buildings. People are still going to church. People are in those churches. But the true church is not often there. In Kentucky, about 60% of the people identify as Baptist. In Mississippi, it's way, way higher. It's over 80% of people identify as Baptist. So you have all these churches, a lot of activity that's going on, but you really can't find the truth of God's Word that's being taught any longer. I was listening this afternoon to a church in Kentucky, one of the, uh, a large Baptist church there, and I just happened to be listening to that, and I was just oh so disappointed in this huge Baptist church that just had a message that was just terrible. Nothing of substance in it at all. Lots of entertainment that was going on. But there was no substance in the, in the church itself. So people are meeting in buildings. They have the signs out front that say Baptist. But that does not make them a church. And many of these churches that, that we talk about here, they were strong at one time. They had pastors that, that studied the word of God. They taught their people right. They fed the flock. The angels of those churches were the first line of defense against heresy for the church. But now it's come to the place that the person that we need to warn the church about is the person in the pulpit. There's the guy who's destroying the church because he has no doctrine, he has no message to preach, he has nothing that's going to build up the people of God. So this is where our discussion has turned in this series. How do we tell if a church is right or wrong? I actually listened... To, uh, in that same church that we were that I was just talking about, I listened to a, a baptismal testimony where the person who was about to be baptized said, I chose this church because 
They really don't make a difference deciding who's right and who's wrong. Well, I, I can't take any more of that. Let's just go on with the message here. This is, where, this, is, this, is where, this is where we've turned. How do we tell if a church has lost its first love? Well, I think the, the Scripture shows that a church has gone off when it no longer seeks Christ in the depths of His Word. Now, the Baptist acrostic helps us to identify, identify core beliefs that, that separate us from uh, true churches, from false ones. This separates us from denominational churches, and so it would also separate us from those who are still using the name Baptist, but all they have is the name. They no longer believe distinctively Baptist doctrines. Now, the doctrines then that are represented in this acrostic are, are not an attempt at systematic theology. I explained that uh, uh, before. This isn't a logical progression from one doctrine to the next. That's what you find in a systematic theology. And if we wanted to study one, that's a good thing for us to do. And at some point, that is part of what we do, studying a statement of faith. That is a systematic approach to doctrine as well. But that's not the time or this is not the time for that kind of a study. This is a time for us to look at just a very simple mnemonic. How can we identify ourselves as Baptists? What are some core doctrines that we believe that separates the Baptist church from all other people that call themselves a church? That's what we're talking about here. So we're defining Baptist practices, but this by no means defines everything that we do, and it doesn't define every doctrine that we believe. This is just what we find and we can draw out of that mnemonic, Baptist, the acronym uh, Baptist. So we've, we've covered the first two, or the acrostic rather, we, we've covered the first two letters of that, and we spent a good deal of time on it. I'll just mention these. We're not going to go through them again. B in Baptist, that stands for biblical authority. A in Baptist, that stands for autonomy of the local church. This evening we're ready for the third letter, and this is the letter P, which stands for the priesthood of the believer. Baptist churches believe in the priesthood of the believer. Now, have you ever wondered why that the pastor of a Baptist church is not called a priest? Some of my strangest experiences are when people come to the church and they have no idea what Baptists believe. And so they approach me and they, and they ask me if, if I'm the priest here. And sometimes they call me Father. I know they don't understand, but I, but I kind of get a chuckle out of this because they have no idea how far away I am from being a priest or being called father. As a matter of fact, if I was, if I was a violent person, then I would get vengeance on my forefathers and I would head down here to Snyder to the Catholic Church and I would take a cat of nine tails and I'd drive them all out of there because of what they did to Baptist people. So, no, no, I'm not anything like a Catholic priest. Well, several times I've spoken to people in my office and... And when they leave, they say, well, thank you, Father, for seeing me today. And, of course, I always make the sign of the cross. And I say, dominoes, dominoes, and, and uh, bless you, my son, as they leave. I do go through all that to make them feel better. But there are some times when, when people do come in and they ask me to pray for them. And they ask me that because they think that because I'm a priest that I have special contact with God. I have some way to get to God, some secret. I've got God's private number. I can get to God, and they can't. Well, the truth of Scripture is, and what we believe, is that I am a priest. That I can go to God. But I'm no more of a priest than anybody else who's in this church. No more of a priest that can go to God than any person that's sitting in the pew. That's what the priesthood of the believer is about. That's a thing that differentiates us. We believe that all of us have the ability to go to God. 
Now, you, don't, you may not be a pastor, and you say, well, I don't have the qualifications that you have, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about being a pastor. We're about talking about being a priest. And my priesthood abilities are not different than yours. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus finished with a pastor at Ephesus, then he spoke to another pastor, then he started talking about the pastor at Pergamum. And one of the complaints he has about that church is in the 15th verse of that second chapter. He says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Theologians debate over what does this mean? What is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Schofield says that it's a word that comes from two Greek words, nikao, which you all know, which means overcomers, one who conquers. That's what nikao means. The second part of the word is laos, which means the people. And so Nicolaitans then becomes the conqueror of the people. And Schofield suggests that this is probably the beginnings of the separation of the church and the laity and the beginnings of the Roman Catholic priesthood, the Nicolaitans. Now, in the Roman system, the priests are conquerors of the people. What I mean by that is they separate themselves from the people. They are the mediator between the people and God. They are above the people. They separate themselves. They are the mediator that you have to go to in order to get in touch with God. And what Roman Catholicism does, it harkens back to an Old Testament priesthood which has been done away with by the sacrifice of Christ. And it's really just another way of teaching that the sacrifice of Christ alone is not enough to make us right with God. You have to have something else. And so you have to have the priest. The priest is needed. You've got to have him in order to intercede with God for you. Well, if the Old Testament priesthood is retained, then you also have to re- retain some functions of the Old Testament priesthood. So you've got to have the rituals to go through. And, of course, Roman Catholicism has the rituals. Their sacraments, our, our attempts to obtain salvation through the, the keeping of commandments, which is not really any different than what the Jews substituted in their Pharisaical system for the way that people are saved. Now, in the Old Testament, God did give ceremonies, but they weren't salvation. People in the Old Testament were never saved by any ceremony that they went through. They weren't saved by keeping any rules or restrictions They were saved in the same way that you and I are saved today. They're saved by the God who gave them those rules and restrictions. And they were never set up to be a way to make them right with God. But they were set up to show people you can't be right by God with God by doing all of these things. And so the rites and the rituals and the ceremonies became a way to show people that the way to get saved is to come to Jesus Christ. And this is what we read in the New Testament, that the law is a schoolmaster, the law is the pedagogos, the law is the, pe- is, the, is the one that brings us to Christ, teaches us to come to Christ, because the law is not good enough to save us. Well, Roman Catholicism perverts that. Uh, the priesthood is just another of the many ways that it actually keeps people away from God. Now, in the Old Testament, people did need a mediator. They couldn't come to God. God separated them. Uh, The priest had to make sacrifices uh, for the people to God. And so God shut out the individual by making the tabernacle a place that was untouchable to the common man. And what Christ came to do is to do away with all of that. He opened up the way 
that every individual can come to God. And so he removed the, the, the barriers that keep us away, and he did that by offering himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. That he is the final sacrifice that is ever needed, so therefore we need no more priest to make sacrifices of any kind for us. Now a priest, again, is a mediator. A priest is a go-between. He stands between two parties to bring them together, and a priest was definitely necessary under the Old Covenant. But he's no longer necessary under the New Covenant. We are living under a New Covenant, which by faith in the sacrifice of Christ permits all of us to go directly to God. Hebrews 5.1 says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So that is the function of a priest, to offer gifts and sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. And then Hebrews goes on to explain how that Christ, as our great high priest, offered himself. And when he offered himself, he removed all access restrictions. So he was the final sacrifice that means that there are no priests that are ever needed again. Now, I find this intensely interesting that Roman Catholic priests make sacrifices every week. That's what priests do. They make sacrifices. So the Roman Catholic priest makes a sacrifice every week in the Mass. And they crucify Christ over and over again. So they teach that the priest is essential to make that sacrifice for you. You must come to the Mass, and that helps you to be saved. Without the Mass, you cannot be saved. Now, before I go further, you might ask, well, why are you picking on Roman Catholics? I mean, there's all kinds of... All kinds of uh, mixed up ideas that people have about religion. Why Roman Catholics? Well, here's the point here. The thing that differentiated Baptist people from uh, the, the, what was called the church, was this is one of those issues. What do we believe about priesthood? And the Roman Catholic Church is the one who upheld the priesthood that said you must have our priest in order to approach God. So this is what differentiated Baptists from them. We, we don't have a priesthood like that. And folks, that is, it's a horrible system. It's actually open defiance against God because God's Word teaches that the sacrifice is done. It's over. All the barriers that removed us from approaching God are, that, that kept us from approaching God, rather, have been removed. That is a distinguishing characteristic of Baptist churches. We, we don't believe we have to go to the priest. So we teach that Christ has fulfilled Old Testament law and since it has been fulfilled, the way to God is opened up through Christ alone. Baptist churches have never taught that there's anything like an Old Testament type of priesthood. We reject the doctrine of the Nicolaitans as well we should because Christ hates that doctrine. So a priest goes to God. We are able to go to God as individual priests. We trust in the work of Christ as our priest to give us access to the Father. And we go to the Father as believer priests. Now this is really clear in the New Testament. The apostles would never attempt to impose an, impress, uh, an oppressive Old Testament type priesthood on New Testament believers. Uh, an outdated priesthood is no good because we have this new covenant that we're living under. And the apostolic order for priesthood is told to us right here in the scriptures. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. He said, ye also as lively stones, ye also as lively stones, speaking to God's people, you are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God 
by Jesus Christ. He goes on in the ninth verse and he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then further we have the scripture in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's definitive. There is one mediator. One mediator. There is no other mediator between us and God. And so the Roman Catholic priesthood is one of the most deplorable doctrines that was ever created in the minds of evil men. That is a distinguishing doctrine. We ought to have contempt for it. You don't have any idea how much contempt that I have for it. That's why I wryly smile when anybody ignorantly says to me, Father, or calls me a priest. Now, when you see a man who wears a clergyman's collar, remember this, he is trying to take Christ's place. When you see the Pope with his flowing robes and a ring that people kneel down to kiss, and when you see him called the Vicar of Christ, turn up your nose in disgust. The Pope is not a good man. The Pope is a deceiver. The Pope is a blasphemer. He's a blasphemous usurper of the priesthood of Christ. Now understand, I'm not talking about the man personally. He may be a nice guy. He might be, I don't know. But religiously, he is an evil man. He's a false prophet. Just very thing, same thing that's described here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now here's the part, though, that I really need you to see. You are a believer priest, but you are not a priest without qualifications. In the Old Testament, a priest had to be very highly qualified. A man would never assume the office of priesthood without meeting qualifications. Now, you might not think that you have the necessary qualifications. And so, like I say, you might look at me and say, well, I don't have your qualifications. And when you say something like that, you're still, you're still hung up on a false idea of priesthood. So you look at me and say, I don't have those qualifications. But we've got to remember here, we're not talking about being the pastor. We're talking about your priesthood. And there are qualifications for a priest, and all of those qualifications have been satisfied for you in Jesus Christ. And that's where you are. You are in Jesus Christ. His qualifications for priesthood then become yours because you are in him. Now, let's take just a few minutes to talk, a few minutes to talk about these qualifications. What are qualifications for priesthood? Well, you'll be happy to know you don't have to go to seminary for them. Uh, you don't... You don't uh, have to have a degree to be qualified to be this priest. You don't have to have a pope or a bishop confer them on you. In fact, they're not qualified to do it, so you don't worry about that. But the first qualification that you need to be a priest is that you must be unblemished. A priest had to be unblemished. Now let's turn to Leviticus chapter 21. The Old Testament priest was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and the physical characteristics that we find here are, are a spiritual emblem of the character of Christ himself. Now, this is qualifications for a priest in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 21 and verse number 17. This is um, God saying to Moses, God says to Moses, Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach. A blind man, or a lame, 
or he that hath a flat nose, or anything superfluous, or a man that is broken-footed, or broken-handed, or crook-backed, or a dwarf, or that hath a blemish in his eye, or be scurvy or scabbed, or hath his stones broken, no man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish. He shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. You might wonder if that's what it takes to be a priest. How could I ever be a priest? Unblemished? No blemishes in me? These characteristics that are given here are of a perfect physical specimen. So you can't be bent over with arthritis. You can't be too short. You can't have bad eyesight. A broken hand, a broken foot, a cataract, a limp. All of those are disqualifications for priesthood. And then what about this? This is a strange thing, isn't it? You can't have a flat nose. So in order to be a priest, you've got to have a honker. You can't have a flat nose. Only the descendants of Aaron could be priests. And among them, there are many of them that could not meet these qualifications. Now, doesn't this also remind you of the Paschal Lamb? How that when they inspected the Lamb, they had to be sure there are no blemishes? And why? Because that Lamb represented the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing that we see here in the priesthood. The priesthood represents the great high priest who is Jesus Christ, and this is why it says there can't be any blemishes in the priest. Well, in the New Testament, the physical characteristics are taken over by spiritual characteristics. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, listen, but that he should be holy and without blemish. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken care of this so that you will be holy and without blemish. Now notice verse 26 says, washing of water by the word. That, that's talking about sanctification. Sanctification is accomplished by living in the word of God. Now how do you suppose you're going to live in the word of God? How do you do that? By what we've been talking about. Take heed to doctrine. This is how you are washed in the Word of God. You take heed to the doctrine that's taught in God's Word. So you just remember the things that we're talking about. These are all part of making you an acceptable priest to God. Knowing this is going to cleanse you in order to make you a better priest. Now verse 27 says that the believer has no spot or wrinkle. He's washed by the Word. So as he is washed by the Word, he is holy and without blemish. Christ has made it so. So that's the first requirement for priesthood. You must be unblemished. That part is taken care of by the sacrifice of Christ who has washed you clean from all of your sins. Now the next qualification for a priest is that he must be proved. This means that he must be proved from a genealogical record. He must have a descent that comes from the right bloodline. Well, there's one tribe from one family in Israel that's eligible for priesthood, the priests come from Levi. And from within the tribe of Levi, only one family is taken. That's the family of Aaron. Now, Moses was also a Levite, but his children couldn't be priests. It's only those who have been descended from Aaron. Well, the Jews very carefully guarded the genealogical record. I mean, they made sure that 
it was kept right so that there are absolutely no mistakes about who has the right uh, to the priesthood. This is demonstrated for us in Ezra uh, when the Jews returned from their captivity. Now, worship at the temple was about to be restored. They're going to rebuild the temple, and they need to... Uh, they had rebuilt it, and now they need to restore the worship of it. And so the right priests have to be found to do that. Well, there were some who approached and said that they were priests. They were said they were, said they were qualified, but they weren't. So this is what we read in Ezra 2.62. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. So here's the problem. To be a priest, you've got to have the right bloodline. You've got to be able to prove that you're from the right family. Well, likewise, in the New Testament, a priest has to have the right bloodline. What is that bloodline? He must be born of the Spirit of God. That's how God's child is recognized. He's born of the Spirit of God. So how do we know who are the children of God? Galatians 3.26 tells us, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's enough to tell you that nobody else is going to be a priest and that nobody else can approach God. Only those who have become children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a distinguishing thing, isn't it? It's the only way that you can be a priest. So the right bloodline is established by faith in Christ. Then you're born again as a child of God and through faith in Him being born again, then you have been proved to have the right genealogical record. Now, a third thing for a priest is that he must be clothed. He must be clothed. You have to have the right clothing. And we're not talking about Gucci or Versace or Calvin Klein. Calvin's a little close, but not quite close enough. Not Calvin Klein. Now, interestingly, also Levi's don't work. That's kind of a strange thing, isn't it, too? Even if we wear Levi's, that doesn't work. So the clothing has to be right. In the Old Testament, there are special garments for priesthood, especially the garments of the high priest. Every part of his garment, this is so important because every part of his garment told his story about Christ. All of his clothes are important. They must be proper. They must be in every detail put on in exactly the right way. Everything has to be just right. And that clothing was very, very impressive, especially the miter that went on his head. There was a, a, a hat that he wore, and on the, on the forehead of his hat, it had a golden plate that said, Holiness to the Lord. In Exodus 28, verse 36, And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it like the engravings of a signet, Holiness to the Lord. And it goes on, it tells us more about clothing and Verse number 40 of that chapter. And for Aaron's sons, thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles, and bonnets shalt thou make for them for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and shalt anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. So you read that whole chapter, and you'll see how very, very particular God was about the priest's clothing. Well, in our time... God is no less concerned about clothing. I want you to be careful how you understand this because the physical here is emblematic of the spiritual. So you don't ever want to listen to a preacher who takes this too far and demands that this means a certain type of clothing that you are to wear. This has nothing at all to do with the physical body. Now, the physical body is important, but that is not the subject that we have under view here. 
Now, if the preacher then keeps pushing this thing about uh, spiritual clothing and that, that, that the spiritual clothing means the thing that you actually wear to church or wear every day, if he keeps pushing that, then we have to ask, why aren't you consistent with all the other parts? Do you have a flat nose? Then you shouldn't be a pastor. You're going to push this as a physical thing? All right, don't have a flat nose. And you can't be overweight either, for that matter. You can't be a pastor and do that. Well, how does God take care of clothing for a New Testament priest? Well, actually, many scriptures that tell us how. We'll just look a little bit here. Uh, the Old Testament actually sets us up already for a spiritual application of it. This is in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Now the fulfillment of that particular scripture is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19 verses 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. There we find the clothing for a New Testament priest. His clothing is the clean white robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness that stands good for us. That is our covering. His righteousness is the only one that's going to fit the qualification for the clothing that we should wear. That's how we're properly clothed. Well, a question might ask, be asked, then what happens if you approach God without the right clothing? We have an answer for that. Matthew 22, verse 11. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith to him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then he got thrown out because he didn't have the right kind of clothes on. Now, I talked about the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This all has the same reference to it. You don't come with the right garments, you get thrown out. So you see how the scriptures keep telling, this, telling us, you do not try to approach God without Christ. There is only one way of salvation. There is one way of righteousness. There is one way to heaven. It is a constant, consistent theme of the Scriptures and New Testament teaching. Do not try to come to God without being properly clothed. And that clothing is the righteousness of Christ. Now, fourthly, then, a person is qualified for priesthood by being purified. A priest has to be purified. Now, there are two different types or different types of purification in the Old Testament. One of them represents justification and the other sanctification. The priest had to be purified, first of all, by a blood sacrifice. Exodus chapter 29, verse 21. And thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon the garments of his sons with him. And he shall be hallowed. And his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. He shall be hallowed. You remember what that means? Hallowed? That's separate. It's a, the word comes from the same word that we get sanctified. You shall be hallowed, set apart to God. Now that purification, this particular purification, has to take place before the priest could offer sacrifices for the people. And that first act of purification actually represents the way that we are justified with God. 
that the guilt of our sin is taken away as we are washed in the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is what New Testament says. Uh, Peter, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with what? The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Revelation 1.5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, those verses compare with the text that we're using in 1 Timothy. They also compare to Acts 20.28, 20, where, interestingly, Paul was speaking to Ephesian elders, and he said to them, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost had made you overseers to feed the church of God, which what? He hath purchased with his own blood. That's the first type of cleansing. And that stands for justification. Then there is a second type of cleansing. And it stands for sanctification. A priest also must be purified in his sanctification. Now immediately in front of the tabernacle, standing between the brazen altar where... Uh, the sacrifice was made, which represented the justification, immediately between there and the entrance to the tabernacle stood another piece or another article, which was the brazen laver. And the priest would go to the brazen laver just before he entered into the tabernacle, and he would wash himself at that brazen laver. What he didn't do was take a bath in it. It wasn't there for that. What he did was wash his extremities, his hands and his feet and so on, to get the stains of the blood off of him before he went into the sanctuary. Now, that reminds us of what Jesus said to Peter. You remember Peter said, Lord, give me a bath. In, in John 13, Lord, give me a bath. And Jesus said to him, well, you don't need to take a bath. The bath represents justification. You've got that. You don't need a bath. But what you do need is to have your feet washed. And the washing of the feet was symbolic of our daily sanctification. As we read God's word, as we study his word, as we confess our sins, we are being sanctified on a daily basis. And so to be a priest, you must be purified. You must have that type of sanctification. And so we see here that, that uh, I mean, the, the difference that we have here is the difference between justification and sanctification. That's what this part is about. When Jesus said, you only need to wash your feet, that's difference between justification and sanctification and what the word of God is showing us that in the New Testament it is Jesus Christ who has supplied everything for us to be a priest you have to meet these qualifications and when you do Hebrews says you don't have to be shy to go to God it says you can come boldly to the throne of grace that's something that an Old Testament priest would never do he would never walk up to the tabernacle and push that heavy curtain aside and walk into the sanctuary. And then walk into the sanctuary, go beyond that, and then step up to the, to the veil that hang, hung between the, the sanctuary, the holy place and the holy of holies, push it aside, and then look at the Shekinah. He would never do that. The reason that he wouldn't do it, because he knew it could mean death for him to even try it. Why? He can't go to God. He can't approach God in that way. He needs the priest to go to God for him. And so he had none of the qualifications to go. That's why he stayed out. That's the restriction. And that's what Jesus changed. With his high priestly function, he sanctified himself and he removed the veil so that we can see God. Then we are enabled to become priests. 
We become a kingdom of priests. And each of you as a believer in Jesus Christ, Christ is qualified. You are qualified to go to God and to make spiritual sacrifices. Now, one more comment I'll make, and, and we'll be through. We're a little over time, but one other comment. The priesthood of believers also means that you have the right to read and interpret Scripture. This is the, one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church fought tooth and toenail against for centuries. You could not read the Word of God. You cannot understand the Word of God. You cannot interpret the Word of God. You need the priesthood for that. Don't read the Bible because only we can interpret it. And what did they do to John Wycliffe? He translated the Bible from the Latin of the priest into the common language of the people. And the Roman Catholics hated him so much that they dug up his bones and they burned him after the fact. Well, the Bible teaches you don't have to worry about that. As a believer priest, yes, you can interpret the Bible. Yes, you can understand the Bible with the Holy Spirit's help. You can understand what the Bible means. And when the people realized this, and when men like Wycliffe had given them the Scriptures in their own language, and they began to read it, that's what actually fueled the Reformation. People began to read the Bible, they could see it for themselves, and they saw what the Bible actually said, and that's when Rome began to lose its grip, and now thousands of people were freed from the shackles of ritualism. God does not have a magisterium for you to consult in order for you to understand his word. You are a believer priest, and so you can read and study and understand God's word. Now, let me, let me tell you to remember this. Remember that golden plate. Always keep that in mind. You are a believer priest, but don't forget about that golden plate. And what did it say? Holiness to the Lord. God expects that of us. He expects us to be a holy people. You are a priest. Understand, you are a priest. Sitting right there as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest, which means you have very, very serious responsibilities. You must be holy. That's what God demands of his people. So this is the last P, or first P, or only P, I should say, in Baptist. Maybe if you've got another one, we've got it all spelled wrong, don't we? This is P in Baptist, the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. And again, I tell you, I bring this all up because uh, this is originally put into the acrostic. Why did they pick P? I mean, you could have picked something else here. You could have picked, uh, what, what else could you pick? You could pick Perseverance of the Saints if you wanted to. Use a P for that. But this particular one that's put in, the priest of the believer, is because that is a definite thing that separates us ecclesiastically from Roman Catholicism. This is a distinctive doctrine. That's why the P is put here. So biblical authority, autonomy of the local church, priesthood of the believer, these are doctrines that Baptist people have stood on since the time of Jesus Christ. We take heed to these doctrines and we'll save ourselves and those that hear us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time in your word tonight. Uh, Lord, uh, such great truths that we draw out of these scriptures and we're thankful that somewhere in time somebody decided to attach these different doctrines to the name Baptist so that we would have a clear way of understanding them and showing the difference that there is between us and others. Lord, we thank you that you've shown us that truth. And here we are sitting tonight in a Baptist church 2,000 years after Jesus began his church, still teaching the very same thing that he and the apostles taught. What a, what a, what a marvelous privilege that is. 
Help us to be the kind of priest that we ought to be, qualified priest to offer up spiritual sacrifices to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.